Should we avoid boredom? Can boredom be a good thing? These might seem to be counterintuitive questions because, after all, nobody really wants to be bored. But I think that we can begin conceptualizing boredom slightly differently by asking another set of questions. For example, what if you never ever got bored? Would that be an ideal state? Or would the complete lack of boredom itself create a kind of boring situation? Here's a concrete example of this.、Um, when using social media, I think that many of us tend to continue scrolling because we expect to find interesting things,、uh, things that are not boring. But then the consistency of that experience of scrolling and experiencing these micro moments. Of happiness creates on the macro level a sort of ambient boredom. So it's the reliable chain of these micro happy moments that creates a wider pattern of boredom,、uh, precisely because of how predictable and consistent that pattern of micro happiness is. So ultimately,、uh, boredom at the macro level. Takes over the happiness at the micro level, and I think、uh, that's probably the moment when many of us、uh, log off and do something else. Welcome to another episode of Eclectic Intellection. So let's talk about boredom. Let's examine it、um, in more detail. Let's talk about the different ways in which boredom shapes the human condition. My guest today is Peter Tuwi,、uh, who has written a book on boredom.、Uh, the title of the book is "Boredom: A Lively History," and、uh, the book was published by Yale University Press in 2011. Peter Tuwi completed his doctoral studies at the University of Toronto, and he is currently a professor in the Department of Classics and Religion at the University of Calgary in Alberta. In my conversation with Peter Tuwi, I first asked him about his intellectual background and、uh, why he decided to write a whole book on boredom. I teach classics, and that was what my PhD was in:、um, Greek and Roman literature primarily. So it has, you could say, pretty much nothing to do with boredom. Nor has it got much to do with the books that I've written since boredom. The,、um, I guess,、um, I like my day job a lot. That is to say, teaching classics. What I do with the rest of the time relates to. In part to the history of the emotions or the cultural representation of, of troublesome and difficult emotions that that people feel, and I say cultural history because the、uh, neurology, if you like, and the psychology of these things is is fascinating. But so too are the、yeah, representations in literature and art, and even music. Sometimes, how did I get to write on boredom? That's an easy one. Anybody who writes on boredom will tell you the same answer, It, with a few exceptions. 
that I get bored myself. And what else are you going to write about but the sort of things that, um, that trouble you? In the book, Peter Tui writes that boredom often appears when two elements are combined, monotony and confinement. But he also writes that repetition and disgust play a role in the emergence of boredom. He writes about the difference between simple and existential types of boredom, as well as the protective qualities of boredom. So a clearer sense of how these elements fit together and uh, create boredom would be useful at this point. There's usually said to be two sorts of boredom. Most people agree to that. Whether they both exist is another matter, but there's two sorts of people talk about. The the first one, the sort of simple version, the way I define it is it's a – an emotion of mild disgust, and uh, it's produced by temporally unavoidable and predictable circumstances. Disgust, if you don't like disgust, you can move uh, another word in, discomfort, disquiet, whatever. The reason I use disgust in that definition of simple boredom is is that the term pops up commonly enough from uh, the Roman writer Seneca, talks about nausea and uh, it's it means seasickness there but he means a sort of sickness that emerges from repetitive circumstances that we could relate to boredom Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a, a book about a type of boredom that he calls and he titles the book nausea well he didn't title it that he called it melancholy to start with and I think Gaston Gallimard said no 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 we'll call it uh, nausea and that's the name that's stuck. That's a little defense of the use of, of nausea in this thing, but I'm saying a mild disgust produced by temporally unavoidable and predictable circumstances, and that's the simple one. The other version is uh, what's sometimes called existential boredom, and the way to define it, I can never remember it, so I'll read it, but it's a powerful and unrelieved sense of emptiness, isolation in which the individual feels a persistent lack of interest and difficulty with concentrating on their current circumstances. That's the existential sort. Whether the definition I gave would be better placed as something relating to depression um, is something for for you and anybody listening to decide. My own feeling is, is that it is. We're talking about depression with that. Nothing wrong with confusing boredom with depression, but they are, they're separate. They're separate elements. They're separate things. There is a third type, if you like, and it's best way to think of it is it's a little bit like simple boredom, but it's chronic. That is to say, some people simply are immensely prone to boredom an awful lot. This is often linked to the level of, of dopamine within a person's brain, and it, the remedy for this this type of boredom is usually said to be activities that will produce a spike in dopamine, so anything with a mild form of excitement. The one thing I should say is probably the most popular definition was the first definition that the um, York University in Ontario psychologist uh, John Eastwood said, and he, he terms it an aversive feeling of wanting but not being able to engage in satisfying activity. 
a lot of people like that definition. My own difficulty with that one is just that it could apply to a whole lot of other things. There, there is a range. There's definitely a range of these uh, different emotions that seem to revolve around some kind of a core. And I wanted to read a quote from the book where I feel that you've um, described that sort of core of boredom. Um, so on page 45, you write here, a definition of boredom might go something like this. It is an emotion which produces feelings of being constrained or confined by some unavoidable and distastefully predictable circumstance, and as a result, a feeling of being distanced from one's surroundings and the normal flow of time. So uh, when I read this definition, um, and, and when I'm thinking about what is at stake, in any discussion about boredom, it, it seems that what's at stake is how do we avoid it? It sounds bad. But when one reads the book, uh, we, we actually come away with a slightly different conclusion, a slightly different takeaway. You're not trying to say that, that boredom is bad. Um, so, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, about that and sort of what you see as being at stake uh, in this discussion. The definition or the portion you hooked out um, from page 45, that uh, that replicates pretty much the definition, the simple definition that I gave to you, but adds on this notion of uh, of distancing, alienation, if you like. It's possible. If boredom's an aversive emotion. Well, let us put it another way. Boredom's an emotion, and most emotions uh, um, work as aversive things. That is to say, they drive you away from a circumstance or a situation that's bad for you physically, for your mental health or whatever. So that boredom is an aversive emotion. In and of itself, it's not creative. But what it does is it pushes you away from the circumstance that you're finding unavoidable and predictable. And if you're lucky enough to be a, a creative sort of a person, possibly it's going to push you in that direction. That's the link. In and of itself, I don't think it's uh, it's 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 there's anything necessarily creative in it the other side of it is and here's where the confusion comes in is bored people tend to daydream and i think there's no doubt that there's a link between daydreaming and creativity whatever it is you play through arguments you play through situations you're going to use in your your piece of music or your novel or whatever so daydreaming becomes a remedy for boredom and i think that can be a creative thing but in and of itself boredom's not creative which is sort of disappointing everybody wants it to be but i don't think there's much evidence for that so there's a way in which in and of itself it's not necessarily a good thing but it tends to lead to creativity so it, it tends to kind of set the ground for something to be built there some something else to emerge there it may do, but I mean, to call to call boredom a bad thing um, is not. You would never say, for example, well, you shouldn't say that anger is a bad thing. Just to take another simpler emotion, I mean, anger's bad if it gets the better of you. But anger in a situation where you or your family is threatened is a good and protective emotion. So it works both ways, doesn't it? And I think we could run through nearly all emotional states and find pluses and minus to them. They're designed to help us. They're designed to 
what fixes our inner lives with the outer world in which we're operating. And boredom operates just on the same sort of um, in the same sort of way as as anger does. It can be bad and it can be good. In and of itself, it's neutral. I think. I think you have to say that we can't go judging emotions. We're now getting a better sense of what boredom is and uh, what it isn't. It's an emotion. It's generally unpleasant, and uh, it can indeed be very painful. But it can also encourage creativity, and it can be a productive emotion, one that leads to positive change. But there's more that needs to be said about the protective nature of boredom. Does it, in fact, protect us? And how does it do so? I think that it's, it's sort of hard to pin down, but maybe there's, there's two ways of thinking about it. A simple one is situations that are predictable and unavoidable and last too long have been linked to this uh, type of a brain atrophy. The sort of chemicals that are linked to that, their production is harmed by being stuck in a situation of excessive boredom. So that's the simple one. The other one is there's no doubt there's a link between boredom and depression. The definition that I gave you for the existential boredom sounds like depression. And maybe why that comes up is, is that if you're confined too long, a natural reaction after the boredom has been lived with can be perhaps initially anger, but it may be depression. Who knows whether the anger or the depression comes first? It feels as if depression comes first. So that boredom then can lead into depression if it's unresolved, I think. So those two things I would have said. But, but so initially then, when boredom manifests itself, it tries to move us away from a situation that is potentially harmful. It has that function as well, right? That's right. It's an aversive emotion, as, as they'd, they'd call it in psychology, yes. Okay, well, now uh, what I'd like to do is sort of um, share my perspective on this. Uh, and it's just a little bit complicated. Uh, so let me sort of explain this. I try my best to engage in regular introspection. Uh, and the one pattern that uh, seems to present itself again and again is the following. Positive experiences seem accentuated. Uh, they seem deeper. They seem more, more textured, more intense, more lasting when they are framed by, uh, or I should say, surrounded by moderately negative experiences, but not extremely negative experiences. So on a more basic level, it seems that moods and experiences have a sort of up and down, and the upward emotional climb in other words, the steepness of that climb uh, seems to play a key role in how we experience things. Um, and I, I realize this is really abstract. So let me give you a, a sort of a concrete example here. Um, before the pandemic, I was uh, in Europe traveling around uh, mostly in France and Greece uh, during the summer. And, you know, the cities were very busy, uh, huge crowds everywhere. It was very hot. And in fact, it was so busy that, um, and so so busy and so hot and so crowded that I, I really just wanted to leave. Um, it, it was it was becoming too much, 
And then a few weeks later, I was uh, driving through Montana, uh, probably not too far from where you are in Calgary. And it was a very sparsely populated part of Montana. The, the weather was pleasant. Uh, you know, it wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. Now, I've driven many times through this part of Montana. But on previous occasions, I did not feel this sort of sense of bliss that I did, did this time. Um, and I think that this sense of a kind of bliss came from the contrast between what I had experienced in Europe and, you know, kind of feeling uh, like I'm never alone. I'm always around people. Uh, contra- so I contrasted that with this sort of happy loneliness, I guess you could say boredom, you know, just sitting there driving in my car. So in this example, there are really two states. You know, one state is a state in which I've, I'm almost never alone. And then there's another state in which I am alone. I really appreciated sort of the shift from one to the other. Um, the same way I'm sure I would appreciate the reverse shift. In other words, you know, if I, if I was alone f- for too long, I would probably want to be not alone. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say with this is that boredom provides that sort of quote-unquote negative context, right? That makes what follows boredom more acute uh, or more acutely experienced. And maybe another way to put this would be to say that if we were to never get bored, that itself would become boring. So in order not to be bored in a more fundamental way, we have to be bored in a measured temporary way. I hope this doesn't sound sort of too too mystical, um, but I guess what I'm trying to say with this is that it's almost a necessity to have this as a part of our experience because if it's not there, it could undermine the balance of life in a way. Could be. I mean, it makes sense what you're saying. The uh, boredom's a problem for people. And I think that um, saying you were bored in the car in Montana is probably not the right way of uh, of describing it after you got over the the pleasure of the contrast between Montana and uh, and Athens and the other places you were in, maybe you're not really talking about boredom. Maybe you're talking about a sort of a state of of vacuous lack of uh, of stimulation, which isn't necessarily boredom. That's why I'd bring in the uh, the, the notion of disgust, this sense of disquiet that people feel when they they feel it. And you may be right, we've got to have a balance between the good and the bad, the boring and the stimulating. But on the other hand, boredom's a serious problem for people. So I'm not meaning to be impertinent by saying that I think the Montana experience there leads us away from the problems related to to boredom. But I think really it does. So there's a sense in which uh, boredom could be glorified in ways that are not helpful, you're saying? I could answer that in saying this, that everybody thinks they own boredom. They really do. Um, I don't know what it is that, you know, people contact me a fair bit about it, you know. I mean, for an academic, a fair bit could be like once every 10 years, but much more than that. And they often become irate with me because I won't say about boredom what they want want to hear. Um what can I say? I can only tell them what I think. But um, the most recent person I did clearly 
didn't agree with what I thought. They wanted they wanted boredom to be bad in the sense that um, it's a pursuit of novelty, and that is very like being over materialistic in this world. And so it's part of the materialist culture that we live in. Mm-hmm. Well, sure, that's that's okay. I don't believe that for a minute myself. I don't think boredom's got anything to do with the pursuit of novelty. Um, it's painful emotion it's an aversive emotion and it's signaling for us to move away from it as as you were talking i thought about this idea of balance again that there's a sense in which boredom can bring about that balance and i'm thinking more uh, about the way we entertain ourselves these days right there's a sense in which we avoid boredom um, all the different devices we use the movies we watch all the different services that are available um, help us escape boredom. So in, sen- in the sense of what I was trying to say then is that maybe <laughs> that experience itself, right, of never being bored can in fact become boring. Um, and one way, to, one way to make it more balanced would be to introduce boredom, uh, to sort of, uh, uh, you know, not always be uh, extremely entertained to sometimes uh, just sort of sit with our, with our thoughts, for example, um, and, and actively try to be bored for a bit just to balance things out. So on the one hand, now, on the other hand, um, uh, I do agree with what you said. You know, boredom, again, can be useful, I think, in the examples that I gave. But if it's extended and if it's very intense, well, then, then it, that balance is not there, right? If, if all you get is boredom, well, that becomes very, very boring. Um, and, and, of course, then we've lost the balance. What this makes me think of then is that what, what I was grasping at is this sense of balance and how boredom can be useful if it's you know, uh, present in, in the right amount. It can be useful in, in helping us achieve that balance. So I don't know. What, what do you think about what that idea? It could be the un- the only thing is it feels like the it feels like the statement of a person who doesn't get bored very much, <laughs> which uh, you know God bless you if that's the case. Um, many many people don't get bored very much. Um, many people do. I mean, it's simply part of their um, the part of their life experience. And people like that tend to write books about it and articles about it to try and expunge it from their lives. So. I find I'm sure you're right that the, the, the balance is good, but on the other hand, I'd sooner it be gone from uh, from my life. I think it's unpleasant, and uh, you know, I go to some lengths to try and avoid it. The other thing that you talk about in the book that was very surprising to me. I mean, this was really a surprise. Um, this is a uh, page one fifty one fifty one. You talk about the etymology of boredom. In English, you say here on 150 at the bottom of the page that the the word itself appeared uh, during the 18th century. So it's a sort of very recent word in the English language. And as a noun, right, it was used more as, as a verb initially, I suppose. As a noun, it uh, appeared in 1864, boredom as a noun. <laughs> so this was a real surprise. So yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you about that a little bit. I mean, were you surprised as well when you came across this, and, and why? Why is it so late? I, I think you, you know, it's 
uh, people have spilled a lot of ink over this and uh, and get passionate about it. Uh, they want they want the late appearance. It's with Charles Dickens, Bleak House. I think that they wanted to. They want it to matter because they want to see boredom as the product of the the late product of the industrial revolution, the uh, um, the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, and so on. The movement of people away from a probably you could say, if you want to be blunt, a more a more fulfilling and rustic lifespan to into the into the factories, let's say, uh, that are brought in by. The Industrial Revolution, so that boredom then becomes a a reflection of deleterious changes that are taking place in society. The trouble with that is it's placing a huge amount on a simple word. Now, I th- I think I can't remember. At some point in the book, I list many many synonyms for boredom that people use. A really an obvious one is people will say they're fed up when they're bored. There's this notion of disgust coming in because, you know, you're stuffed full of, uh, of food. But you don't mean that when you say fed up. I'm just fed up. I'm bored. Are there lots of other words for being um, bored? There's lots and lots. Were they used previous to the 1860s when the term comes up? Well, I think you would say yes. The other thing you'd have to say too is to experience an emotion of any sort, do you have to be able to name it? And the answer to that is, well, no, you don't, because if you did, no animal could uh, feel emotions, could they? Because they can't name them. Words are a pretty tricky thing to try and balance uh, an argument for historical change on. On the other hand, like you, I think it's fascinating that, that this term that we're so keen on, boredom, should have appeared then. And it is truly a bizarre term when you think of it, isn't it? I mean, bored? is poking something into you what's it got to do with uh, with feeling fed up with things the other thing that i wanted to ask you about is reception so um how how would you describe the reception to your argument here about uh, boredom you you alluded to a couple of uh, different views on this uh, i guess some people disagree so so if there's agreement or disagreement on, on what terms do those emerge People, um, the people who are who are in, very interested in political change, would like to link boredom up as part of the uh, part of the societal malaise produced by things like the industrial revolution and so on. I, as you know, I, I mean, it's interesting, but I don't believe it because the evidence is not there. And anyhow, Romans felt it, and uh, Greeks felt it, and I mean the ancient Greeks. They didn't talk about it a lot. They did later on in their culture. But if it was something that's linked with the Industrial Revolution, the removal of the power of the aristocracy, the, um, the devaluing of the power of, of religion, a great void produced by this, how come the Romans are talking about it? How come the Greeks talk about it? Because it's a completely different culture. So I, I find that one not so, not so convincing. I think... Probably the the largest amount of work on boredom is done by by psychologists, and I think there's a certain amount of, of agreement between what they say and what I would say. The definitions, their definitions, are perhaps a little different because they're not coming at them from a historical or a or a cultural point of view. But in things like is boredom good for creativity, they would say no. It's an aversive reaction, but it can push you in that direction. Is 
the daydreaming that's associated with boredom um, is it helpful for creativity and they would again say yes. So I think there's there's a lot of agreement there. There's a lot more agreement now than there was 10 years ago. And the reason for that is nobody was coming clean that they worked on it 10 years ago, except for the uh, Norwegian Lars Svensson who wrote what is still a great book on it. So I think that depending on where you look, but I think amongst the psychologists, there's a fair amount of agreement. Neurologists, they don't it's it's not their territory primarily, as, as one of them said to me here, well, gee, it'd be good if we could s- simulate some uh, boredom situations and get people through uh, into an fMRI. And, uh, um, and then he said, we could never do it. We'd never get any money for that. So that's, that's why it's the psychologists rather than the, uh, um, the neurologists working on this sort of thing. So there's quite a bit, again, at stake um, ideologically, politically, uh, who we are as humans <laughs> when we talk about boredom. Um, Indeed. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I mean, it also sounds like there's quite a bit of work left to do on this in terms of the history, the psychology, and the rest of it. I think the psychology, the history, I would say less. I mean, it gets a bit gets a bit dull hearing about the same sort of things again and again. But there's, there's work that psychologists can do, for sure, and have done. Um, uh, John Eastwood, whom I referred to, and, and or Eastwood and Dankert together produced a book, a psychologist's book, but a very approachable one this last summer. Um, and I guess in terms of the psychological evidence, for the moment, it's the, it's the last word. What, what else would one say about this sort of work? I think... For myself, where it, I mean, I'm talking about myself now, but where it becomes interesting is the way it can link up with other things, other types of emotions, emotional situations, and so on. There, there is uh, more room for work. And there's a practical application of boredom. There's a, a good boredom scholar in, in Spain who's working on the link between uh, boredom in old age homes. She wants to devote the last of her life to it. And she's quite young, so that's a long, long time. She's getting funded for it too. So I would think that's that's one of the ways ahead. Time is going by very quickly. So I think we'll have to end uh, this uh, segment here. So I just, again, wanted to thank you for taking the time to tell us more about your book. Appreciate it. Uh, that's, that's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. <laughs> 